Behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And down to the, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head, swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold, and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks, in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there are we sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes, in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord is and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall dip, drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk. And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness. For the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Um, the second Bible passage is Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. And you can find that on, um, on page 1058, 1058.
Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade, around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. That ends the reading. Thank you, Chow. Well, how about I pray just as we reflect on those words together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that uh, those very words are your words to us this morning, uh, that you have preserved the ancient text and that you might speak again of it today and that we might continue to speak of this as a reality. Um, Father, please take away distractions and help us to reflect rightly on these things, we praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, many of you will know it was Halloween this week. Did anyone get amongst it and go chasing lollies and trick-or-treating? Doesn't matter, you don't have to put your hand up. Uh, uh, I didn't realise the epicentre of celebrating Halloween. William Street, um, it, I have never seen so many people in the one place. Uh, there was, I, I don't know, Ryan, you were you're probably at the front of your place, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I drove through there on the way back from here and there was uh, thousands of people, uh, you know, maybe not thousands, I don't know, it felt like thousands. I couldn't go, but they were everywhere all through that. Uh, and, you know, there's just houses decked out with, you know, skeletons, death, Grim Reaper, all these apocalyptic scenes and all these people walking around uh, in some of these scary, you know, things, some like princesses, um, but, uh, you know, but, you know, as we celebrate Halloween, you've got this kind of apocalyptic scenes, you know, the mythical scenes uh, portrayed kind of like cartoonish, 
uh, not real, scary, but fake. Friends, I, I think most people today think about God's judgment like Halloween. You know, it's kind of mythical, cartoonish, uh, something, you know, that if you reflect on it, it's kind of big and scary, an interesting thought, but not true and, you know, probably fake. Uh, you know, no more true than those kind of apocalyptic Halloween uh, setups we have. Friends, this passage describes this true reality of the final judgment day in Joel 3. Uh, it describes it in poetic imagery, but it's graphic, isn't it? Uh, in I want to, for us to, I want us today to reflect on how actually this news of a final judgment day is good news for us. Uh, we did uh, say in the Apostles' Creed, didn't we? There's a line in there that Jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead. This final judgment day is something that Christians have believed and clung to and found great comfort and hope in. For many a years and they've celebrated it but we often find it hard don't we we often find it hard to think about it and i get i get why because there's a finality to it there's a huge consequences to to the reality of facing and meeting a god who sees everything uh there's the reality and the, the realization of our loved ones and our friends uh there's a reality that we ourselves are going to meet Him. Friends, this ancient text, written over two and a half thousand years ago, talks about this future event and talks about it in graphic, real ways, so that we might not just know it's going to happen, but that we might feel the weight of it. And I want us to, to see that actually this news is actually good news, that there is a God who sees all, knows all and will hold everything and everyone to account and that he will right all the wrongs. Uh, so, welcome, if you haven't been to church before, you know, you've come on a serious day, really. It's a somber day in many ways, but it's, I would love to invite you just to dip into this historical world and think, oh, what is, why is it that they have? You might have lots of questions, I'm happy for you to chat with whoever, chat with Jasper and Nicola and family, chat with us. Um, but as Simon said, we, uh, what we do here is kind of work our way through different parts of the Bible, different books, and we're at the end of Joel. And Joel began, didn't it, with darkness and mourning of that dreadful locust plague that was coming, uh, that was sent by God uh, as a kind of judgment on his people. Uh, and, you know, the locust plague in some way is something like the thunderstorm, the lightning you see before a storm comes through. It's kind of the warning signs that there's a, there is a storm coming. And when you hear it and you see it, you know it's coming. Uh, and the locust plague, which came through in Joel's time, it was a warning of a much bigger day of the Lord, a day of judgment coming. Now, that prophetic warning, there was a call to repent to turn away from the ways and come back to God and throw their only hope in to the God who loved them and made them. And in chapter 2, that's what happens. Uh, then God relents and turns away the locusts uh, and He restores the land and the people. But then last week we reflected that His promise is 
far bigger and greater than just that physical restoration uh, in Joel's time, two and a half thousand years ago, but actually he promised a time when everyone would receive the Spirit and everyone would actually know God truly. Not just the occasional prophet or king, but everyone can know the God who holds the universe together and made them. And that what we saw was uh, in the last days. And that the, those people who call on the name of the Lord are those that have the Spirit and uh, can know God personally and know that forgiveness. And then this morning, we jump into chapter 3, and he starts with, in those days at that time, uh, God will restore the fortunes of his land. And he's speaking about land again. And you think, okay, what's going on? Well, I want us to just think there's two primary groups of people spoken about here. So, in chapter 3, verse 1, you have Judah and Jerusalem. So, verse 1, he talks about restoring the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Um, you get verse 8, he's talking about the, the people of Judah. Verse 16, uh, the Lord is speaking from Zion. Now, Zion is just another name for the city of Jerusalem, uh, where the Lord's people are. Verse 17, it tells us that God dwells in Jer Zion, Jerusalem. Uh, verse 20, you've got the blood of Judah. Verse 21, the Lord dwells in Zion. So, on the one hand, you've got this group of people, the, uh, the nation, Judah, Jerusalem, uh, where the Lord dwells with and who is with. But on the other hand, you kind of have the nations, don't you? Uh, and this group can kind of just be lumped together. So, verse 2, God is gathering all the nations together. Uh, verse 9, he gets this call to proclaim among the nations and to call them to battle. Verse 11, he hastens them to come, all the surrounding nations. Uh, verse 12, it's God who's going to judge these surrounding nations. Uh, verse 4 and 19, you get the example, you get Tyre, Sidon, regions of Philistia, and Egypt and Edom in verse 19. These are all nations, all historic enemies of the people of Israel, people of Judah and Jerusalem. And when the Bible kind of uses that language, nations... He means everyone but God's people. Now, this raises an obvious question, I think, for us today, uh, and it's kind of screaming in our ear, and Simon alluded to it, but when we hear these names in these places, we can just automatically think of the news this morning and the war that's going on, can't we? And think, think Joel, is he talking about modern-day political Israel and Palestine and the war that's going on there? Can I say, no. That's not what he's talking about. I mean, modern-day Israel was only, you know this, came about in the 40s, so he's not talking about that. But more than that, I think it's actually, we can't read the Old Testament text as though they're not written to a certain people in a certain time, in a certain context. Uh, and the situation going on then, that, that Joel is prophesying in, is nothing to do with the situation that's going on now. Uh, yes, same patch of land in the world, it's talking about that, but it's nothing to do with that. Now, the interesting thing for some Christians is they make a big deal about this, right? And I don't know if you've read stuff, or, and particularly uh, Christians in America, but the more I read the New Testament, the more I'm convinced that this is actually a misunderstanding of the Old Testament, and it's actually a misreading, and it actually is doing great harm, I think, uh, in the Middle East. Because the New Testament, it teaches us that when... We today, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, or to read the Old Testament, 
when it speaks of Zion, Jerusalem, people of Israel, you know, the family of Abraham, it's not, it's not um, speaking about a racial people or a political state, but it's actually, or even a geographical region primarily, it's actually talking historically about, and as an anticipation of fulfilment of a spiritual people, okay? New Testament, we can read the Old Testament in that way. And so, who is it that belongs to Abraham's family? Well, Romans 4 will say, the true sons of Abraham are not physical bloodline people, but those who by faith, who have the Holy Spirit, trust in Jesus. So, if you are here today and you follow and trust Jesus, you are a child of Abraham today. Uh, And that is for everyone, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, you're all one in Christ. Uh, As a child of Abraham, there's also, you know, as Galatians 4 talks about the place, Mount Sinai, so Hagar, um, it's a a present city which is still in slavery. Uh, But Jerusalem speaks about, Paul speaks about it as being Jerusalem from above, those that are free, those who belong to the heavenly city, is all who believe in Christ. So even in the Old Testament, Palestine was never the promised, like it was never meant to be the fulfilment of the promised land. Abraham, he never made it there. Uh, he was always longing for his spiritual homeland. And the, finally, uh, the New Testament reading that we read is about the historical city that gets destroyed. Jesus comes into it, and what is he? He's weeping. He's weeping because the very people that he made these promises to didn't know the peace. It had been hidden from their eyes and they didn't recognise Jesus. That's the tragedy of the New Testament, is that these people that had been waiting for someone to come and turn up, Jesus turned up right in front of their eyes and they missed him. They didn't recognise him for who he was. Uh, not only that, they, they killed him. So really, I'm trying to say, we've got to read this as New Testament Christians, we've got to put our historical hat on, and it's not a call to a holy war in the Middle East. That's not what it's talking about. Uh, and it, which is quite interesting, is that you don't need to go for a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to be a Christian, to be a, to be a strong, mature Christian. You, know, you, don't, you don't need to go physically there to get the blessings of God. I remember I um, used to be in conversations with a guy that would cut my hair, and he, um, he would always say, oh, have you been and seen all the holy places? And I'd be like, no, I haven't. And it, he didn't really, it was like we were misfiring because he, he was like saying, what do, you, what do you mean? You haven't been to this rock? And he's pulling out the phone and showing me all these places where he'd been. I'm like, nah, I don't really have any interest in going there. And it was just this misfire because for many, for some who um, in the Abrahamic face, they think it's important and critical to actually get there and see it. And it's actually a way you get spiritually blessed by being in the physical land. And so I'm like, no, nah, I'm... I mean, I believe in Jesus. Uh, you know, I have that blessing in Christ, spiritually. So, to be in Christ is to be a child of Abraham. Uh, to be in Jerusalem is to be in Christ. And to be in Christ is to be in Zion. Okay? Now, with that in mind, let's kind of jump in and have a look at what this prophecy says. So, really, in the first 16 verses, verses 1 to 16, it's really... Um, a God calling the nations, those who oppose him uh, and who are hostile to him, 
to a valley of judgment, to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Uh, And verse 2, have a look there. Uh, If you haven't got your Bible open, have a look there. Verse 2, he says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I'll enter into judgment with them there. Now, Jehoshaphat, it's not a physical location. I don't think there'll be enough, a big enough valley (laughs) to house all the people of every nation. Uh, Actually, Jehor is the beginning of the word we say Jehovah, uh, which is Yahweh, which is the Hebrew word for the God of Israel. Uh, And Shaphat is judgment. It's uh, to judge. And so literally, Jehoshaphat means the place where God, the Lord, will judge. Uh, And, you know, verse 14, this same place gets called the Valley of Decision. So he's calling the nations together because it's decision time. It's uh, God's judgment against the nations. And he says to them, all you who oppose me, I want you to come down to this valley. Uh, And you can kind of feel God's indignation at them as you read it, can't you? You can feel, he feels how they've mistreated his people. Have a look at sentence number two again. He says, Bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my because they have scattered them among the nations and I and have divided up my land and have cast my lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. You hear what I'm saying? These, these people that you are treating so badly, they're my people. It's, they're, they're my land, my heritage. You know, these nations, they've sold Jewish boy for a night with a whore, verse 3 there. Uh, they've just sold a girl for a party. And he's saying to them, you've treated them as nobodies. You've treated my people as nobodies. And this is what the historical... Anyway, we don't have a lot of details about what happened, but it's clear that we get God's perspective and how people treat his people... Uh, reflects on how they treat God. Have a look in uh, verse 4 there. He says, What are you to me, O Tyre and Sodom and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and carried out my rich treasure into your temples. See, there's a sense in which God is saying, How dare you treat my people like that? These are the people whom I've chosen, who I've poured out my blessing. I've delighted in them. They're the apple of my eye. And how dare you do this to them? It's like, um, you know, we, we reflected on that jealousy word in chapter 2. It's, it's, a, it's God here is showing his jealous, right affection for his people. He loves them. We often think jealousy is a bad word and it can have bad connotations, but the way the Bible uses that affection is in a right, loving response. Like a husband is jealous for his wife's affection and the wife is affection for the husband's affections. And he's saying, this is my people, how dare you do this? And it's almost like the nation, he's trying to wake the nations up to this, you know this little kindergarten kid on the bus that you've picked a fight with? I'm the older brother up the back of the bus And, uh, you know, they're just discovering that actually there's a big brother that they're going to have to deal with if they want to continue to pick on this little kindergarten point. So verse 9, 
summons them all. And he uses this kind of poetic language of going to a battle. He says, uh, among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all war draw near, let them come up. You know, it's like he's marshalling them to come, you know, they oppose him and his people, so he's like, well, come on, come to battle, let's do it. Come to this, up to this, uh, the nations to join together. Uh, then in verse 9, we get this reversal of, you know, the prophecy from Isaiah and Micah that we know. Uh, this time, it's the other way around. You know, now you're getting your ploughs and you're making them into a sword. You say, get your pruning hooks and make them into a spear. Get your weak, get them to come to battle. He's almost saying, you need everybody you can. Get everyone together. Get everything you can get. Because saying, you've annoyed a big enemy here. You think my people, you think I'm a nobody and I'm a pushover? Well, let's have a look at how this goes. And uh, so what's he, what's he doing in this battle? The nations are all coming together, battling, getting everyone involved. And verse 12, he, it's, he sits there. <laughs> did, you, did you notice that? He says, I'm just going to sit and judge there. It's, it's almost this comical picture, isn't it? They're stirring themselves up for this mighty battle and then he just sits down and judges them. I think this kind of approach is a warning to us, isn't it? I don't know if you've reflected, uh, there's many of us and people that I know and love who uh, would say similar things to the words of like Stephen Fryer uh, who you know, says if he ever met God, he would confront him and say, how dare you? Or, you know, the famous uh, mathematician Bertrand Russell, you know, he would say, challenge God if he were to meet God. So you get these people who think, oh, I'll just, like, how dare God do that? And challenge and think he's on the same level that they can rock up to God and have a say like this. I feel like God's saying to us, just just be careful in your approach. (laughs) This is not a kindy, kindy kind of battle. You know, you're talking to the God of the universe here. And, and do you think you'll have any chance <laughs> of uh, accusing and opposing me? He's kind of saying, just take a, take a self-reflection. I know you might be smart in the world, but we're talking God and human here. This battle, it seems like there's a war, but it just fizzles out, right? This, is, this judges them. But the picture, the, the poetic language that of this last day goes even worse, I think, and it kind of gets this cosmic farming metaphor. So in uh, verse 13, he says, uh, Put in the sickle, the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the wine press is full, the vats overflow, for the evil is great. I mean, this is a shocking picture, isn't it? It's horrific. It's like a vine grower who goes out and gets the grapes, uh, puts them into the wine press and tramples on all the grapes, making sure that every grape gets crushed. And the, the shockingness of the metaphor is that you realise that the grapes, they're actually the people who are opposed to God. Uh, God will crush all those who are opposed to him in his wine press. Verse 14... Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. See, this isn't a point where people are making a decision about God. This is actually God's decision about us. At this point, 
how we've treated God is too late. This is where God puts the final hammer down. It's the verdict. Uh, and this is why he's calling for a battle that they're not going to be able to win because the, the day of repentance, it's been and gone. But now it's the day of judgment. It's, uh, and he expresses this reality in vivid, harsh, full-on ways. And he wants us to feel the weight of it. He wants us to feel this, this judgment of God against the nations. Now, you can imagine, right, the original hearers who had had the nations crushing them, uh, that this was very welcome news, isn't it? Wow, the people who had been treating them so badly, God sees it, God knows, God cares, and He's going to do something about it. And it would have brought much comfort and hope for them, wouldn't it? Uh, even uh, in the midst of their injustice, they would hold on to these words in hope that God actually knows. God actually cares and He's promised to do something for their wrongs and evils done against them. Uh, that there is a God who sees all and one day will judge does bring comfort to us, doesn't it? It does bring comfort. And it, I tell you what it means, it meant for me, is that as Christians, now we're moving forward to us, it means that when there's injustice and there's wrongs and there's oppressed and victims and there's those, all that's happening around us, we can take comfort that God sees it, God knows it, and that the people aren't going to get away with it. There is a final day of judgment. And it means that we don't need to take matters into our own hand. It means that we don't need to despair when things aren't just, when there is, it seems that injustice does rule all the time. And it means that we can entrust ourselves to this God who judges justly. I mean, the thought of a, having a God that judges justly is terrifying, isn't it, at one level? But if you think about the opposite, that there is no God, that there, will, there won't be no true, real, right justice, I mean, that, to me, is way more bleak and despairing. How, you know, with the amount of things that you think, oh, man, this is horrific. This is evil. This, this is wrong. It's an awful thing for us, isn't it, to think that there's no, there will be no justice in our world. I think we, we all want justice. We all want God to be just and we want Him to right the wrongs and hold everyone account. The, and, and I think this is why even people who say they don't believe in God, often when things happen, they cry out to Him because we want ultimate justice. Now, the reality for us here is while we want that, how many of us here are Jewish? Anyone? That, we've got someone, I mean, we are all part of the nations. So we desire God to hold us accountable for our actions. And I think that's a terrifying thought as I just reflect on my own heart. There's things that uh, I reflect on the evil within and the things that I'm, gosh, man, I do not want anyone to see that and I don't want my loved ones to know that. It would crush me. But in the midst of this reality of God's judgment where he will right every wrong and see all evil and hold them accountable, he does give us hope, doesn't he? Uh, he, he gives us hope because there is one place 
which is a refuge in Him. And it's those who call on the name of Jesus in repentance, they have a place of safety and refuge in this day of judgment. Uh, and He talks about the restoration in, in this beautiful language in verses 17 to 21. And I want us to notice this rich, beautiful language. Firstly, notice that in Zion is where God dwells. Verse 17, you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. Uh, and it says the same thing in verse 21. For those who have sought Jesus and are in Him, they will be in this safe place, secure and safe on the day of judgment. Have a look at verse 17 again. It says, and Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. Never again will anyone invade their country. God's people untouchable by evil or harm. And it's this, it's this rich place, verse 18. In that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream dreads of Judah will, uh, shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. It's, a, it's this lovely, beautiful, rich, poetic language which I think is describing the kind of every human longing. You know, the pain and the suffering that we go through in this life, we all have longings unfulfilled, we all have hopes not met and thirsts and hungers not quenched or are fed and he's saying one day, beyond the day of judgment, in that day, you will have all that. I will give it to you. And I think he's warning us to go, okay, I, I want to love the day of judgment. I know the only hope is in Jesus and to, to cheer our hearts. Now, it's, it's a full-on message, isn't it? But I do think it's a good news for us and I have three quick things that I just want to finish up for us here. And firstly, as I've reflected on, you know, if, if, if these things are new to you, if you're kind of new to the things of, uh, God and you know this is you think this is just cr um, weird and crazy and how do these people believe such things? Uh, can I say uh, this? If you're not ready to meet this God that's described here, uh, if you're not, if you don't know Him, if you haven't turned and trusted in Jesus, uh, can I be blunt? This is a warning. This because right now you have time to come, to investigate, to check it out. Uh, ask those who are, you're here with, but can I say, the only place you can go where you'll be safe on this day is Jesus. It's the place where the wrath of God has already been poured out in his death. It's the place where Jesus tells us this is why he came for us, sinful, fallen humans, so that if we but look to him, come to him, trust him, the wrath that we deserve is already being poured out in Jesus in his death. And we can see that that's met fully because God raised Jesus to life in our history. So if this is new to you, hear the warning. Make sure you are safe on that day. Don't ignore it. It's not just a whimsical Halloween picture. This is the words of God. Secondly, can I say that if you already have repented and are trusting in Jesus, that there's a, there's a sense of great thankfulness and comfort that should overwhelm us, isn't it? I think I've just found that immensely comforting as I've reflected. 
over the last couple of weeks, that there will be a God who will put everything right. Every cry will be heard. The orphan will be comforted. The oppressed will be vindicated. The poor will lift it up. The picture of that new heavens and new earth. Death won't rule. Satan will be cast in the fire. There'll be no evil. And God himself will be there and every tear will be wiped from every eye. No more mourning, no more sorrow. Everything sad will be untrue. Now that is a great comfort. And and it's over, for me, just great thankfulness to what God has done in the Lord Jesus that we can know this for true. The last thing it has done for me is just reinforce the importance of calling on the name of Jesus. There's nothing else so important for us to grasp, is there? Nothing so terrifying, so real, so true that will happen. Each and every one of us will meet the Lord Jesus and it just calls on the priority of going, we need to call on the name of Jesus ourselves and share Jesus with those around us. The world, it says, what are you kidding? Judgment hasn't come. We can do whatever we want. It's just a myth. It's not going to happen. You need to be strong, powerful, you know, to use the Old Testament language. That's the best way to go. You do whatever you want. The gospel says, in Jesus is our only hope. And the thing that really matters is that every one of us are found in Jesus because it's there that we will be safe. It's there that we will be taken to the new heavens and the new earth and the place of safety. That's the end of the book of Joel. I, I hope you found it encouraging. It's been challenging, I know. Uh, and I pray that we'd all be ready on that day. So I'm going to pray now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message from so long ago that you've preserved for us. Father, we pray that we'd all come under your safety and refuge in the Lord Jesus. We pray, Father, that as we look around and see injustice and we see hopelessness, that we would not lose hope, that we would not lose sight of this picture of your justice and your goodness and that you will one day on that final day make all things right. And we pray this in our Saviour's name and our only hope's name. Amen. Well, friends, please stand and we're going to respond by reflecting on this news and we're going to respond. Come up, Ben. Yep, don't, you don't have to wait for me to finish. Uh, and we're going to respond by singing about our greatest treasure is in Jesus. Please stand and join me in singing My Worth is Not in What I Own, but in Jesus.